You are listening to a message by Travis Scott from our gatherings at Shorebreak. Visit shorebreakchurch.com to get connected with more content. And if you would like to support the gospel being preached in Kona and to thousands online, your tax-deductible donation enables us to further Jesus' mission. Partner with us by giving at shorebreakchurch.com backslash give. Mahalo. You can turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John chapter 13 this morning. If you're hanging out, visiting, uh, seeing what Shorebreak's all about, this is your first time here. We have been, we're a church that studies God's Word. We love the Bible. We love what this book has to say. And so um, we've been studying through the Gospel of John, and we've called our study, Light Has Come. And that's because Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and the Bible tells us that um, light has come and darkness cannot comprehend the light of Jesus, which we know that Jesus' light is more powerful than any darkness that Jesus can pierce, even the hardest of hearts, even the darkest of places. Those things don't scare him. You can say Jesus isn't afraid of the dark, right? He's not. And so as we've been studying and looking at the Gospel of John, we've been having Jesus' light expose his truths to our heart. Because John said, the reason I wrote this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was so that you and I may believe. We may move deeper and further into understanding as Christians into the gospel truths. Because as Christians, as we will talk about in a little bit, we never move past the gospel. And if you don't know Jesus, that's specifically for you here this morning. We're so glad that you are at church. Now, I know some of you are like, hey, I wanted a Mother's Day message, right? Like, what about... A Mother's Day message. Can't you at least... Now, I don't think, actually, there is a better text, a better message we could look at because John chapter 13 is saturated, is marinated with love. It has love through and through. And I don't actually think there's a better verse, passages of Scripture we can meditate on this morning than this. What we're going to be looking at today is the aftermath of love. The aftermath of love. I don't know if you guys have seen recently, Google came out, Google always comes out with crazy technology, don't they? I mean, it scares me sometimes what they're coming out with. It's like soon, sooner or later, they're going to have like screenshots of us being born in hospitals that's going to be posted. I mean, they are coming out with some of the craziest things, and one of them is the satellite imagery. I don't know if you guys have seen this. I, it's like, I don't remember what they called it, but basically what they do is Google has collected satellite screenshots of the face of this earth since 1984. And so you can pick specific locations that they have this for. So they have like Las Vegas, they have Dubai, they have some of the glaciers um, up in the northern hemisphere, the northern, northern part of the hemisphere. You can see the changes, the effects that people in nature have on our environment. And what I'm not here is I'm not saying global warming is real or not. That's up to you to decide. But it's interesting to look when you look like Las Vegas, for example. You can see the population growth from 1984 till 2013. And go home, check it out. It is a trip. And what you really see is the aftermath of growth. You can see deforestation taking place. You can see Lake Mead, that's just outside of Las Vegas, decreasing because the population of Vegas is, is increasing. And it's really interesting. Now, we look and people are fascinated with the causes of our environment, the way that we live. But What are the causes of love? I mean, if we are saying, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, what does the cause of that look like? There should be evidence, right? 
And that's what we're going to be looking at today. There should be an aftermath. If you drive a boat through a glassy lake, there is a wake behind. There is change that takes place. So what does the aftermath look like of Christ's love invading your life? Should there change? Should change take place? And if so, what should that change look like? How is the landscape of our lives practically changed and transformed by Jesus loving us? Because here's what we studied last time in John 13. Jesus' love for you is relentless. His love for you never fails. It never quits. His love is scandalous. Like, that's why he was killed. Jesus wasn't killed because he healed people. Jesus wasn't killed because the blind could see, the lame could walk. He was healed because he hung out, he was killed because he hung out with sinners and tax collectors because he loved them because his love his love is scandalous and as we saw the last time we studied in John 13 verse 1 the banner really of the whole gospel what does it say the second half of verse 1 in John 13 for this hour had come to depart out of this world To the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's unstopping. It's unfailing. His love never quits. Just goes to show that as Jesus washed his disciples' feet, there's no area that is so nasty, Jesus won't bend down and stay low and wash your feet. He will go to the areas of your life that no one else will even want to touch, right? And he gives us this imagery of washing feet. You know, some of you, I've seen your feet. They're nasty, right? I'm not, I'm not touching your feet. And you don't want to be touching my feet either. And, but Jesus bends down and washes the disciples' feet to display something so much bigger than washing feet. And even when we don't feel worthy that God would stay low and wash our feet, we're going to continuously see as the story goes on, Jesus is going to empty himself out completely so that we would be full. He's going to drain the rest of life that he has so that we could be filled to the top and overflowing. And that's why I believe there is no greater passage we could study on this Mother's Day than this. Now, as a refresher, I have to remind you, we are in the last now 24 hours of Jesus' life. The chapter of his earthly ministry is coming to a close And we continue this story now as Jesus, right after he washes the feet. But here's the big idea that I want you guys to have in the back of your minds as we study this. An infectious love for Jesus will spill over into love for other people. If you say, I love Jesus, but you don't love your wife, you don't love Jesus, right? If you say that you love Jesus, but we don't take care of our kids, or we love Jesus, but we don't love his church, I would say, as we will soon examine, those are areas that we need to press up against the truth of God's word and be challenged to see what he has to say. So let's pray one more time before we get into the word of God. Jesus, thank you for this time that we have to study your word. Holy Spirit, we are dependent on you. We need to hear from you. This isn't just another church service, just another gathering, another cool thing to be a part of. We are part of something so much bigger than ourselves. And I pray that all of the misconceptions of Christianity and all the baggage that we bring in that pollute your gospel, I pray that you would pierce through those, that we would see you. 
And even right now, God, as our Bibles are open, I pray that our hearts would be open and receptive to your truth. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 13, let's start in verse 21. Verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. Pause. Uh, the way they ate then was like on lounge chairs. They were better than lazy boys. They were like these glorified lazy boys that, that actually would curve up and then curve up again. So you would eat sideways with your mouth right next to the table. How many guys are stoked about that? Like, yep, just take it, put your arm on the table, and just scoop, right? Just, just do this and proceed. That's actually how, kind of how they ate then, reclined at the table. So the disciple whom Jesus loved, who was that? John, the one who wrote this gospel, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. I love that. Wouldn't that be a great adjective of you, remaining close to Jesus? So Simon Peter mentioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking, so that the disciples, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. If they already weren't confused enough from the foot washing, because that was kind of confusing, right? If you didn't listen to that message, we have it posted on iTunes. You can listen to it later. But that was a little bit confusing. Now Jesus drops this bomb on them. Because if you remember, Jesus is going around washing the disciples' feet, and Peter's thinking, I can be extra spiritual. Jesus, don't even touch my feet. Don't even go there. You should not go washing this, this, my feet. And, and Jesus said, really? If you won't let me wash your feet, Peter, you can have none of me. And Peter's like, all right, give me a whole bath. And Jesus is like, no, no, I'm not giving you a bath. You're, you're missing the point. And, and so the, the, the interesting thing is, is, this isn't about foot washing, is it? No, it's about Jesus coming in and cleansing us. And so Peter is probably confused from that. And as the conversation continues now, Jesus drops this bomb in the middle of the conversation and says, oh yeah, by the way, one of you are going to betray me. Put yourself in their shoes. They've been following Jesus for three and a half years. They have walked away from their jobs for Jesus. And then Jesus says, oh, by the way, one of you are going to betray me. Their hearts must have hit the floor. Their minds, can you imagine how their minds were spinning? Who is it? Is it me? That's why Peter and John are having this conversation. Peter's like, hey, John, you're the one who Jesus loves, right? Why don't you go up to him and figure out who it is? Because in this moment, it was, it got quiet really quick. And as Jesus stoked, to be like, hey, one of you are going to betray me. Yay. No. Look at verse 21. We are told that after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. So Jesus here, troubled, reluctantly tells his disciple John, that the one he serves the dipped morsel into the wine, the one he serves that to, is the one who's going to betray him. 
And of course, we know who that is. It's Judas. It's Judas, verse 26 reveals. But you know what blows my mind in, in all of this? Is that Jesus picked Judas three and a half years ago, knowing that Judas was going to betray him. What blows my mind is that Jesus let him be on his team and Jesus surrounded him and discipled him and taught him for three and a half years knowing that Judas was going to betray him. And that in the moment of his betrayal, Jesus is going to love and honor Judas. How do we know? Well, historically, to be served directly by the host as a guest was considered, considered a great honor. So when Jesus here took this morsel and dipped it into the wine and gave it to Judas, Jesus was honoring Judas, loving Judas, as Judas was betraying him. I've been thinking about that. Wow. Isn't that incredible? Sometimes we think, oh man, when I sin, when I screw up, when I mess up, Jesus is like waiting up in heaven. He's going to chuck a lightning bolt down and boom, I'm gone. No. No. But before we judge Judas too quickly, Isaiah 53 exposes our Judas problem. You can turn there later, but you can write this down for reference. Isaiah 53, 4 exposes the pitfall of just being human, of being human. It says this, Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have turned and gone astray. Everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Man's biggest problem is that we are all Judases. Man's biggest problem is that we all like sheep have gone astray. We have all been Judas at some point in our life. So before we get too hard on Judas, like, man, that guy, no, 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 we have all gone astray. And if you do not know Jesus, let me just say this. Your biggest problem in your life right now is not your debt. If you don't know Jesus, your biggest problem is not your singleness. Or your biggest problem, if you're married, it's not your marriage. Your biggest problem is not your stress, is not the problems with the environment, is not your fear. That is not your biggest problem. If you do not know Jesus, Our biggest problem is that we have failed to give the glory that is due to God and his name only. That is the biggest pitfall of mankind. If you get to describe the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, what would it be? It is that man has failed to give glory to God that is due his very name. Our biggest problem are not all these other little things. And what the devil wants us to do is get focused on the little problems, get focused on those little things to totally ignore giving God glory. But that's not our biggest problem, is it? Our biggest problem is that we have failed as humans to give God glory because we all, like sheep of what? We've gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. 
But if ever at a moment you think you need to do something to earn Jesus' love, think about Jesus' compassion towards Judas. If you think you need to earn Jesus' love, think about how Jesus honored Judas in this moment. Because before you ever thought of God, God thought of you. Before you ever picked God, God chose you. Before you ever loved God, God loved you. Isn't that good news? And what blows me away is that in this moment, when Jesus' enemy, this betrayal is taking place, Jesus is so amazingly wonderful because he tries to save all the people who will try to kill him. So not only is Jesus loving him, Jesus is trying to save the very one who he is betraying. But Jesus knows what's going to happen. What happens? Well, verse 27, Then after he had taken the morsel, speaking of Judas, Satan entered him. Not only was Judas demon-possessed, he was possessed by Satan himself. Just to remind you, you have an enemy. And our enemy is, of course, Satan and his demonic forces coming against us. But know this, the higher authority, the more influence you have, the more spiritual opposition that will come. He's not going to send some demon in training to come after you, right? In fact, Satan hates Jesus so much, he's not like, I'm going to give this to one of my best demons. I myself am going to possess Judas and kill Jesus. Because Satan hates Jesus. Satan wants Jesus dead. So was Judas a Christian at this point? No. Because light does not have fellowship with darkness. You cannot be a Christian and be demon-possessed. You can experience some of the oppression that comes from following God because the moment you say, I'm a Christian, you've got a target on your back, right? You've enlisted into God's army, and now you are a direct opposition of the devil, for sure. But you cannot be demon-possessed. So Jesus says to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Get it over. Now, no one at the table knew what he said to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, he was the guy in charge of the money, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. In the midst of this dark night, this moment now, Isaiah 53 is becoming real for Jesus. It is actually happening. Now, as low as Jesus got when he was washing his disciples' feet and Judas' feet included, Jesus washed Judas' feet. Jesus now is going to get even lower than washing their feet because he's going to soon die on a cross and he would bear the sins of the world. How much lower can he go? How much more could Jesus empty out himself for sinful man? What love is this? See, Judas would give his life for self-glory and not for God's glory. 
And I want you guys to see this. This is, this is a huge implication in the text. Our biggest problem as man is not a horizontal problem. It's a vertical problem. And the very thing that Jesus is doing is trying to fix that vertical problem by going to the cross. But in this moment, even in our own lives, we can often be so obsessed with self-glory that we miss the glory of God. But obsession with self-glory is betraying God's glory. Sometimes we think, oh, I'm not betraying God. Are you kidding me? Well, if we glory in ourselves, we are betraying God. And even as a church, even as Christians, we should always be living in light that everything we do, whatever we do, we should all be done for the glory of God. Because when we live for our own glory, we are betraying God and His glory. And what we need more than anything in those moments is the work that Jesus is headed to on the cross in this moment. The very thing that we need for our self-glory that can heal us, that can forgive us, that can absorb all of our stupidity is taking place as Jesus is, has his sight set on the cross. His head is facing. It's going to take place on Golgotha. Because God is going to take all of our shame, all the shame that we've wrapped up, the debt of sin. He's going to, I'm taking this and I place it on Jesus for those who have faith in him. And this is what I love. Jesus loves us and he loves us to the end, right? Loves us to the end. So verse 31, when he had gone out, so Judas left now, he's out. The disciples will never see Judas again. The next time they will hear of him, he would, have, he would have already hung himself and the branch would have broke that he hung on and his body fell down the cliff and would have splattered everywhere for the crows to pick, to eat up his insides. And so he's gone out now. And Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified. Now. Get the betrayer out. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. This is so solid, all right? I mean, if we're going to talk coffee here, like, this is, we can't just pass over this really quick. I mean, this is not Folgers or instant coffee. This is a quadruple shot of espresso. This is packed, Okay. And, and with the time that we have, we're going to try to unpack this a little bit. But what Jesus here is saying is he is claiming that the fame of God, that God's glory, that, that God is magnified as Jesus is crucified. Now, we know that intellectually often as Christians, but why do we believe that? Well, it's here in these verses that is in Jesus, that it is through Jesus we can only glorify God. So a lot of people will say, yeah, I love God. And, you know, he's cool. I'm, I'm down with him. Okay, well, do you love Jesus? No, then you don't love God. And people will say, well, I worship God. I love God. No, you don't. Because you don't go through Jesus. Jesus is the means to which we glorify God. And Jesus here is what he's saying is, I am spending my life. My life is spent for the sake of God, my Father. Jesus exhausted all of his resources to the point of the cross so that God would be glorified. And we never see more of God's glory and judgment than we do when Jesus is stapled to the tree. 
Because it is at the cross we see the clearest expression of love this world will ever know. The clearest expression of love this world will ever know is when Jesus was crucified. Let that truth set in. And just so you know, that's why we're a gospel-centered church. We consider ourselves a church that is placed on top of Jesus Christ and the work that he has done on the cross. That is why we remain cross-focused. That is why we never move past Jesus and the cross because there are plenty of people, there are plenty of churches. There's a church right down the street that will tell you all roads lead to heaven. Everything is just works out. You just believe your thing, you do your thing. No, no, no. We, we are centered and built upon the gospel because the last thing we need is another thing to do, right? Because if we have another thing to do, another thing to check off on our list, then we are being self-righteous. But when we remain on the gospel, on the truth of the gospel, hold fast to the gospel, we keep the main thing the main thing, then we're going to grow in the gospel. We're going to actually be able to conquer over sin because we rest in the event that took place of Jesus conquering sin and death. And that is why we say as a church, we, we are gospel-centered. And we will spend all of our energy as a church dwelling in the gospel. We're never going to move past the gospel. Sure, there are different implications and applications of God's word. But it always comes back to Jesus. Jesus always kept the main thing the main thing, right? He did. Because Jesus is the main thing. And that is why our church, our vision is to amplify Jesus. To make much of his name. To glorify God just as Jesus glorified God. And what Jesus is saying here in verses 31 and 32, I have always perfectly kept the main thing, the main thing. He always lived for God's glory. That's why you can say, now it was the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. So where are we in this? Where do we fit in, right? We're like, all right, so what does this mean for me? Here's what it means for you. Are you in there? No. Am I in there? No. It means that Christianity, to its core, is not about you, and it's not about me. Even the Bible we read, even this book that we study, oftentimes what we do, right, it's early in the morning, we're going to work, or let's say we slept in, and after work, we're like, I'm going to read it. Like, what do I got to do today, right? And we approach God's Word, and like, well, what, what, what can I get from here? How can I be spoken to from God's Word? What are the... What can I do? And it's like we approach this as though somehow that we're fit into this story and it's, it's about us, but it's, those things aren't bad, but it's not about us at first. This book is not about us. Christianity is not primarily about what we do. The Bible, Christianity, is all about what God has done through Christ Jesus to reconcile everything back to himself. That is first what our faith is all about. Let me say that again. You have to understand this to grow in the gospel. Christianity and the Bible is all about what God has done through Christ Jesus to reconcile everything back to himself, including you and including me. And since it's not on us, right? It's not on us anymore. Is it on us? No. Since it's not on us anymore, since it's on Jesus, what does that mean now? We're free. We don't have to perform. 
We don't have to be awesome. We don't have to wear the right thing. We don't, it's, it's not like, all right, I got to get my Jesus t-shirt on. I got to pick up the Bible. I'm going to do these right things. Those things aren't bad, but that's not it. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is the main thing. And how much is it not on us? How much is it not on us? Look down at verse 33. I love this. I love this. I love this. Moms, you get this. You get what Jesus is saying here. Verse 33. Little children. This is the first time Jesus will, has ever used, that we have record of, calling them his little children. Yet in a little while, I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So how much is it not on us? Well, I don't know. It's utterly impossible. Because <laughs> Jesus says, hey, you think you can perform? You think you can sober up, clean up, stop shooting up, and be good for, my, for me? You can't go where I'm going. The thing that I am about to do on your behalf, the execution I am facing, even if you died on the cross, you got what you deserved. But I'm doing it for you. And you cannot go where I am going. Because our biggest problem can only be dealt with the cross. It is only through the cross that our biggest problem is remedied. And so what does Jesus say? I got this one. Church, hear this, hear this, hear this. Jesus says to you, I got this one. I'll absorb your sin. Even though you've hated me, I'll love you, and I'll love you till the end. I'll forgive you. I'll go where no one else can go. I'll take your sin, place it upon myself, and in turn, I'll give you my righteousness. Little children, I got this one. I got this one. I got this one. I got this one. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't go where I've been. Only I can do this thing. Stop striving. In a couple weeks, we're going to open John 15, and we're going to unload on that whole topic, and I cannot wait because it is so liberating. But they didn't totally get it, did they? Let's skip down verse 36 here. We'll come back to the other couple verses. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Of course, Simon Peter says that. Always opens his mouth. Lord, where are you going? Can I go? Right? It's like Wreck-It Ralph, when he's, have you guys seen that movie? Okay, maybe not. Maybe I'm like excluding half of you. Terrible illustration. But he's like sitting on his little brick pile, looking up at the penthouse. Everybody's having their party in a disco. And he's just sitting there like, I want to go to the party. I want to go, right? And that's what Peter's doing. Can I, can I go? Jesus, I'm going to be with you. Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Jesus is like, no, you can't come with me right now. This is a work only I can do. You can follow me afterward. But Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? For I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. I love that Jesus knew Peter was going to fail. But here, Jesus, look, look at 36, the second half. But you will follow me afterward. Jesus promised him, you're, gonna, you're coming where I'm going, just not right now. And Jesus acknowledges his failure in verse uh, 38. You're going to deny me. 
But this denial is not the same as Judas's denial, is it? It's not the same at all. Because Peter here, in his own attempts, is trying to glorify God, not through the Spirit. Because Jesus is faithful. He finished what he's, he always complete and finish what he starts. He is faithful to, be, to complete the work that he's begun in you. Some of you have quit. Some of us have walked away. We've kind of let off the accelerator. All right, well, you know, don't quit. Keep going. He will finish you. It isn't slack on his children. Now, okay, so take all this now. Take all of this that we've studied now to the last two verses we're going to look at here. These verses are epic. They're huge. They're the summation of discipleship and Christian life as a whole. Verse 34. Look down with me. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Is that a new commandment? No, as Deuteronomy 6. That's not a new commandment. So what is the new commandment here? All right, Jesus said there's a new commandment. Where is the new commandment? When I was studying this, this blew my mind. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Here it is. Just as I have loved you. So you ought also to love one another. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, we were commanded to love God. Under the New Testament, in the New Commandment, Jesus commands his love for us. Jesus' love for you isn't a suggestion. Jesus' love for you isn't a good idea. Jesus' love for you isn't, well, if you perform good enough for me, then you get some more love. Well, if you really blow it, you're not getting any of it. No, Jesus' love and affection for you is a declaration. Right? We got like kids, memorize the Ten Commandments. Have you memorized the New Commandment? Jesus loves you. This is huge. This changes everything. If you're taking notes, write this, John. 1 John 4.19. It says, we love because what? He first loved us. So your justification, your salvation is not dependent upon your love for Jesus, but Jesus' love for you. And when Jesus loves you, as we will look at the aftermath of love in a moment here, that spills over into love back to him and love for one another. Jesus' love is a commandment to you. That's amazing. So what is the aftermath of this love? Well, because Christ loves us, we can love one another. Because Christ serves us now, we can serve each other. Because Christ forgives us, we can forgive one another. Even recently, someone that I know is going through a divorce. Her husband has cheated on him multiple times. He's leaving his family in the name of, for the sake of ministry, believe it or not. And when the wife was asked, how are you doing? Where are you at with your husband leaving you? She said, you know, I'm devastated, but I forgive him. And I want him to repent, to come back home. So when Christ loves us, when his love comes down from heaven and, it, and we understand that it's a commandment and that it's a reality, it changes the 
way we live. Now we don't have to love God. We get to love God. Now we don't have to love each one another. We get to love one another. Now we don't have to serve the church. We get to serve one another in the church. We get to forgive one another. So what are the symptoms of properly diagnosing the transforming love of Christ in our life? All right? If we're going to say, all right, there's an aftermath of love. There is a wake that takes place when Christ loves us. What should that look like? Because if we can't claim to love Jesus and love him, we should get the diagnosis right, shouldn't we? In fact, I read an article this week about a guy named Mark Temple, and he's 70 years old, recently diagnosed with a terminal brain tumor. Given only months to live, he sold his truck, quit his job, and held the last birthday to pay for his funeral. And his son-in-law even made a box for his ashes. He was on medication, contemplated suicide. Then he began to feel better all of a sudden. And he went back for more tests and found out that he was improperly diagnosed and didn't have brain cancer, but suffered a series of small strokes. That's a bad day, right? Good day, but bad day for him. The hospital recently had to pay him $59,000 for the wrong diagnosis. Let me just say this right now. Crazy story, yes. If you wrongly diagnose and understand, you think, oh, I got Jesus love me. Yeah, yeah, I mean, sure, sure. The consequences are deadly. If you do not see Christ's love in you. Why? Because what does verse 35 tell us? By this, all will know that you're my disciples. They will know it. The world will see it. There should be evidence that what you have love for one another. So how can we properly diagnose Christ's love in us? Well, do we have love for one another? If you love Jesus, you will love your spouse. If you love Jesus, you will love your kids. If you love Jesus, you will love the things that Jesus loves. You will. And we measure our growth as disciples by our love for one another. So how are you doing? If we could look at your life right now, is there evidence that you love Christians? That you love God's people? Now, I'm not saying that we don't love the world. Of course we love the world. We're commanded to go into all the world to make disciples. Amen. But what Jesus is saying here is that the most effective witness, the best evangelism tool is not a track, is not cool graphics or a nice stage or good music. The most effective tool for evangelism to this lost world is our love for one another. And that makes sense when we look at Jesus' life, doesn't it? He knelt down and stayed low to wash the disciples' feet. Jesus would go in the name of love and be crucified on a cross. So are there clear symptoms that Christ's love is in you? And here's where we're going. When we truly love Jesus, we love what Jesus loves. And what does Jesus love? Big question mark, right? What does Jesus love? His bride. Jesus loves his church. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Ephesians 5, 25. says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. 
Did you know that Jesus loves this church? Did you know that Jesus loves this church? Did you know that when Jesus went to Golgotha, us collectively, his church, he went to the cross and he died. He gave himself up for us, his church. Jesus loves his church. And sure, we aren't perfect, right? Are we a perfect church? Uh, No, we're not a perfect church. Do we have a lot more room to grow? Absolutely. We need to grow. We have a lot of room to go, to grow. But we might be dirty. We might be imperfect, but we are still Jesus's bride and Jesus still loves us and Jesus loves his church and we should love the church that Jesus loves and that he gave himself up for her. This is the Bible. I, I believe that verse 35 isn't just talking about love for individuals, but loving one another. Disciples loving disciples, the church loving the church, us being in community, gathering together on a Sunday, and loving one another. And when the world sees that we have love for one another, we are being effective in showing the world that we are his disciples. Amen? That's how God designed it. So let me ask you, is there space in your life to love Jesus' church? Or have you filled up your life with so many hobbies, so many activities, that there is no room in your life to love his church? See, a lot of us will say, okay, well, what do you do? Well, my identity is I am a lawyer, so that's what I do. I'm a lawyer. Okay, yes, you are a lawyer, but you were part of his church first. Some of you are baristas, right? You make coffee. Thank God for you. We love you. Are you a barista? Sure, you're a barista, but you are his church. That is your identity. Some of you are part of a missions organization. Some of you have different jobs. Some of you maybe are even part of the church. But let me just say this. Your identity is not in what you do, but who you are. And who you are is in Christ. And who is Christ? Well, he loves his church. He loves his church. He loves his church. And when you experience Christ's love, you know this isn't a guilt. All right, now you got to be part of the church, right? Come on now. No. It's like, oh my gosh, I get to be part of the body of Christ. I get to be loved by Jesus. I get to be part of his church. Is there space in your life to love Jesus' church? Because let me just say this. Whatever you are into right now that isn't Jesus' church, it's not going to last. You know that? Did you know that there are companies 500 years ago that are not, not, are not in business today, right? In fact, in Jesus' time, Rome was basically own the world. They own the world from Spain all the way to almost Japan. Rome ruled the world. Is Rome around today? No. Rome isn't ruling like they were. Is the church still around today? See, in a thousand years, Apple computers is not going to be around. Listen, I, I know some of you love Apple. Some of you love Facebook. You love those things. That's not bad, but is that going to be around in a thousand years? Is the United States of America still going to be around in a thousand years? Is Gangnam style still going to be around in a thousand years? I certainly hope not, right? I hope not. See, for 2,000 years, the church has existed. The church has thrived. The church is in more nation, more languages, more people than any business, than any nation, anywhere. And the church will be around for another thousand years if Jesus doesn't return. The church is the biggest thing that this world has ever seen. There are two ordinances that God found. The first is marriage. 
between a man and a woman, I have to say today. The second is the church. You guys realize we are part of something bigger that is so much bigger than ourselves? That when we love Jesus' church, when we love what he loves, we are being on mission, being who God called us to be. Because the church is the biggest movement that the world will ever see. And when we love what Jesus loves, we love the church that Jesus loves. So do you love his church? Love his church. Love his people. Because the world will see that in our love for one another, our vertical love for God is correct, and they will be amazed. If our risen Savior gave himself for the church, shouldn't we give ourselves for the church? that he gave himself to. It's awesome. Verse 35 in closing, by this all will know that you are my disciples. By what? By the love that you have for one another. Some of you guys, you know, you're in community groups. About half of our church is in community. I think that's awesome. We want to see tons, we want to see every person who goes to this church who calls Kona their home. We want you to, to get involved with the community group. But you know this, you've been in a community group. Loving one another, is it convenient? No. It's messy, right? Is loving one another easy? No, loving one another is difficult. Is loving one another a feeling? No. Loving one another is a decision, a conscious decision that is made. And when we choose to love one another, we reflect our Trinitarian God, who is in heaven. It is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All are loving one another and pouring into each other's lives. And we should, you guys, like Chris read earlier, out of Romans 12, we should out-love one another so much that the world looks on at the church and wonder, knowing that there is no way that is human love. But that is a love that comes from God because an infectious love for Jesus spills over into love for one another. We said earlier that our biggest problem, if you do not know Jesus, is that we have all betrayed God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all been Judases. And listen, if you do not know Jesus and you were at church this morning, you realize that Jesus has loved you and he's continuously loved you and he's been gracious toward you and he's been patient with you, but you have not repented from your sin and turned from it and looked to him. Do you realize this morning how much Jesus loves you? Do you see the love that he has towards you? Isn't it so liberating? Isn't it so wonderful? Let Jesus cleanse you. Let Jesus wash your feet. Let him go to the dirty areas, the dirtiest areas of your life and bring renewal. We desperately, desperately need that. Respond to Christ's overwhelming, scandalous, gracious love and let him love you and let him love you till the end. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. And I pray that through your spirit, we would all 
know that we are loved beyond measure. Thank you that you have given us the clearest expression of love, you sacrificing yourself on a cross. And with every person in here, with every head bowed, with every eye closed, if you've heard the message of Jesus' love for you, you realize that Jesus has loved you. You realize that he first loved you, and you maybe haven't even loved him until this moment in this service through the Holy Spirit. Repent from your sin. Turn to Jesus. And if that is you, and you've looked at the aftermath of love, and in this moment God is transforming your heart and changing you, Raise your hand up in the air. Just raise your hand up in the air if that is you. With every head bowed, with every eye closed, I know many of you in here, some of you guys I don't know. And if God is doing a saving work in your life right now, and you for the first time have realized Christ's love, raise your hand up in the air. We don't want a moment to go by without you acknowledging that so we can be praying for you. God, thank you for the work that you have done in our midst. I pray now that as we move on into worshiping you through song, that our heart's anthem would be to realize that you love us and you love us till the end. And that brings a freedom that we would, that we will forever come to understand and realize and we are with you for all eternity. God, thank you for moms. Thank you for their love, which is so reflective of your love. Pray that they would be encouraged. Pray that their spirits would be filled and that they would realize that they can love their children and they are able to continuously love their husbands, their children, their significant others or whatever God you have for them that they could love you and love you till the end. Jesus, forgive us. Wash us clean. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that Jesus is doing a work in your life from the message that you just heard. We would love to hear how you were impacted and what was impressed on your heart. Share your story by emailing connect at shorebreakchurch.com. And if you don't know Jesus as God, Lord and Savior, or you have more questions, send us an email to info at shorebreakchurch.com so we can get you dialed in with a free Bible and resources for your new relationship with Jesus.